This is Rad Talk with Tracy, the podcast. This is a place where you'll discover what's possible when people impacted by reactive attachment disorder inspire change and build community through sharing their stories and expertise. I'm Tracy Poffenroth Prado, and I'm your host. I'm really glad you're here. And before we get started, if you like the podcast, please click like, share, and write a review. It helps so much. Let's get started. Hello, listeners. On the podcast today, I have the opportunity to talk with a rad dad, Brady Johnson. I'm not sure if you remember, but I interviewed his wife, Crystal Lynn. And if you want to go back to listen to that episode, it was episode 36. And just to refresh everyone, Brady and his wife, Crystal Lynn, adopted four children. And then they had a biological daughter, a miracle daughter, as Crystal Lynn liked to call it. Uh, Their son, Scott, is who we focused on. He has reactive attachment disorder, and we heard mom's story, but now we actually get to catch up. It sounds like there's been some changes, and we actually get to hear from a dad raising kids with reactive attachment disorder. Welcome to the Rad Talk with Tracy podcast. Brady, thanks for being here and being willing to share your story. No problem. So... Uh, you were just filling me in. So the last time when I talked with Crystalline, your son, Scott, we talked about him. He had reactive attachment disorder, has reactive attachment disorder. And at that time he was at a boys Academy. Is he still there? Is that still how things are going with Scott? Yeah, he's still there. He's still up in Montana doing uh, a program up there. Um, he's seeing some progress, but, um, not a whole lot. And how long has he been there? Uh, a little over a year now, about 14 months. Gotcha. And how old is Scott? Uh, he just turned 13. Oh, wow. Okay. And so not much progress, but a little progress. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And then you were telling me that you, so you adopted four kiddos and one of the other, one of your other sons, Caleb also has been diagnosed with reactive attachment disorder. Yes. Caleb is Scott's biological brother. We adopted them at the same time. Uh, Caleb came to us when he was two and um, we're Scott was seven when he came to us. Caleb's now eight, um, and we are seeing, we were seeing the exact same pattern of behaviors, the exact same issues that we saw with Scott when he was eight. Um, And so we decided to have Caleb go and do the same program uh, to try to maybe see if we could, I don't know, head it off a little early to see if he would be able to, uh, I guess, heal. Right. And so are they both at the same school? They are. Yeah. yeah. They're, they're both at the same program. Gotcha. So let's talk about you for a little bit. Sure. So your experience as a dad, what did you expect or did you have any expectations when you adopted or had your daughter as a parent um, actually, our, our expectations were 
like any parent would have for their kids. You know, you're hoping, hey, my kid's going to grow up and be super successful, play sports, you know, just be a run-of-the-mill kid. And, you know, you're just, you just hope that, you know, you love on them and that everything would work out. You know? Right. Which obviously is not the case in um, <laughs> no. all situations. Right. Right. Did you know anything about reactive attachment disorder or trauma or anything going into this? <laughs> no, nothing. <laughs> no, no, no. My wife is the one that she likes. She reads up on all the medical stuff and knows all the information. I, I just go with the flow. I not much of a reader. But yeah, I had no idea. No idea. And so did you notice anything different? Often when we talk with couples or meet couples, their experiences are very different. So often, you know, families come in all shapes and sizes, but often the primary caregiver. So in this case, your wife is the target, the nurturing enemy. And then, you know, the other parent or caregiver doesn't often get those same or see those same behaviors or get treated the same way. Were you on the same page with Crystal Lynn or was it very different for both of you? Uh, it was definitely very different for both of us. Um, the big difference for us is I travel for work. I'm usually gone 14 to 16 days out of every single month where I'm on the road. I leave early come home late. So when I'm gone, I'm gone. But when I'm home, I'm home. Um, so I'd be gone for about four days at a time. And she would see a lot of those, a lot of the behaviors. And then I would come home and I wouldn't, I mean, I would see a little bit here and there, but not anywhere near what she would see. And which made it really difficult because she'd tell me one thing and I'd be kind of seeing something else. And so a lot of times it was, well, maybe she's just overreacting. I mean, I don't see that. Um, and so it, you know, it, it just kind of made you look at the whole situation weird and it put, you know, a level of doubt in there going, okay, who's really, you know, what's really going on? What's really the problem? Right. And what kind of things would Crystalline report that you didn't see, or how was Scott at that time, you know, yeah. how was he different with you? It was things like, you know, him not doing his chores or not doing his homework. I mean, just being exceptionally lazy or um, passive aggressive defiant. <clears throat> and, you know, being basically when I'm gone, my wife is a single mom. Right. And so that's a ton of stress on anybody. And, you know, I chalked it up a lot of times to, okay, she's just overstressed, overworked. So when I came home, I try to help out as much as possible. And so I, you know, I would overly help the kids to try to, you know, get their homework done, do their chores or whatever. And, you know, it's like, oh no, she's kind of just overreacting. And in reality, she wasn't. They wouldn't act out as much as with me as they would with her. So you saw some behaviors, but did you just chalk it up as like, oh, well, this is typical for kids? 
Well, yeah, it's they're boys. They're, you know, at the time it's a 10 year old boy, a six year old boy. You know, when I was that young, I didn't want to do chores. I wanted to go play outside, run around, throw balls. You know, I right. got in trouble all the time too. So <laughs> I, I checked, you know, and we'd have friends that would say, yeah, my boys do the same thing. And a lot of boys do do the same thing, but not day in, day out all the time. And for me, a lot of it was, oh, it took a lot of time for the realization that this is not normal. Um, this is more than uh, what's, what's typical. Did you have an aha moment? When, when was that realization? Do you remember I don't think I necessarily had a big aha moment. I saw it over time when we would take Scott to counseling and we, we went through three, four counselors and they all said the same thing. He's just, he's not talking. He's not doing anything. Things didn't particularly get any better, but I will say my breaking point and where I went, you know, when I said enough is enough was a little over a year ago when Scott attacked my wife. That was the point that nope, uh, th- this, this is too much. This can't happen. I'm, I'm gone too much. It, it's not, this isn't working. Right. Right. Wow. And were you home when that happened or were you away? No, I was away. I was actually, I remember I was in Portland. Um, I had just flown into Portland. And I had just landed and I had voicemails from, from my wife and, you know, it was, my work's great. They, you know, they said, go home right away. Just go home. And that's what I did. Turned right around. And I think I left at three in the morning that day and I got home at midnight. (laughs) Wow. So, yeah. Yeah. Were you surprised to get those text messages and for it to reach that level? Yes, uh, I was. I, I think I was. I was more surprised because everything escalated from passive defiance to violence so incredibly quickly. And then once it reached that point, how it stayed there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what was it like? This is a little personal, but what was it like between you and Crystalline, your wife, when you're not seeing the same things and, and you're not sure what or who to believe? What was that like for your relationship? Uh, it really put a big wedge between us. I mean, we really struggled. Um, I think, you know, even now we're still struggling with some of the fallout. Just how do you go back and say, I'm sorry, I didn't I didn't understand like I should have. And we, you know, and it's hard. She, even she understands because she knows I didn't see a lot of it, but yeah, it definitely, it's taking some time to, to work through that and, and talk about it. And I'm sure it's been helpful with the boys not being in the home any longer. That gives you more of an opportunity to reconnect and work through that. It does. Um, it's been really hard still. Because once Scott left, we were kind of able to look at the rest of the family and see, wow, we, we really missed a lot of signs with the other kids and the other kids have, you know, have their own issues. 
And then for the last, you know, once Scott left, his brother Caleb kind of took his role. And Caleb even said, I just, you know, I, I, I'm doing this because that's what Scott would do. And he would, you know, then we still, we started seeing it with, with Caleb and, you know, that just brings back all the emotions, everything you already saw. And, you know, the first thing that goes through your mind is I don't want to go through this again. Right. Oh, it's so hard. You can't imagine going through it again. Yeah. So then we had to, you know, so my wife and I are trying to work our issues out at the same time, dealing with a second rad kid that, you know, it's, it's really difficult. Right. And then you've got your other children too, like you say, with their other issues that you're trying to support and help. And yeah, it's a lot. Yeah. It's a lot. Is there anything that you know now about supporting your wife that you wish you would have known before? I, I, I mean, I wish I would have trusted her and, and realized how, how much it had escalated and realized more that this is not normal at the time. Well, we have right now with one biological child and seeing how she has, she's only two, but even seeing her milestones is so incredibly different than what we saw with our other kids who, when they, when they came to us, when they were two. And so the realization that, wow, this is not normal at all. This is not normal behavior. There's that there is no attachment here. I wish I would have known. I wish I would have realized that a lot sooner and understood the ramifications of that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's hard to know because you don't see it on the same level, but I hear that from a lot of couples is, um, that trust factor, believing your spouse over anybody else. And even if it doesn't make sense at the time, you know, just trusting that, that person. Sure. I think I wish I would have listened to the therapist a little bit more and seen the, you you know, with the signs of, yeah, there is no buy-in here. There's no, there's, there's no um, accountability. There's no wanting to get through this that I think I wish I would have understood what that actually meant a lot sooner. I think I could have supported my wife better if I understood that and, you know, knew that. Right. Did you get a rad diagnosis for Scott right away? You were saying you went to a bunch of therapists, three or four therapists. And most of the therapists we had gone to, um, we, we had gone to an attachment therapist, um, as a, as a family, we had done, uh, play therapy, talk therapy. We had tried, um, equine Everything. therapy <laughs> pretty much. Yeah. yeah. Um, we had, we did have a diagnosis of rad, um, when we first adopted Scott, but with a lot of these kids, you get a diagnosis and it's alphabet soup. I mean, it's so many different diagnoses that you don't know what's what, I mean, none of the, none of the parents are trained in mental health and, you know, the support structure is virtually non-existent. And so you get this list of different things and you're like, okay, but what does this mean? And what is it? And you don't, you're trying to live your life 
And unless you're taking a college level course, you can't get through most of these diagnoses and understand really truly how it's going to affect you later on. Right. And so at the time Scott was seven, by the time he's nine, you know, you have that piece of paper, but you've forgotten a lot of it and you've forgotten the little details and you look back and you just go, man, how, you know, you feel bad. You're like, how did I miss this? Like life gets in the way and you're trying to parent and then be a, a mental health counselor. It just, it doesn't work. And, you know, one thing you mentioned earlier, I think that reactive attachment disorder has that invisible quality to it to some degree. It's invisible sometimes to one of the partners when out in the community, these kiddos have the ability to be very charming and superficially charming and, and seem like that typical kid. And so it is hard to see when only one person really sees it or experiences the brunt of it all and the behaviors. And sometimes the behaviors are that of a typical child, but they're like you say, they happen 24 hours a day and at a level and with something behind it that most kids don't have, you know, typical kids will maybe push the limits, but you'll see that they learn when they're given the opportunity and they make changes and you see progress. But with our kiddos, the agenda, there is an agenda and uh, it's much different, right? It's coming from a place of survival and you don't see that progress and learning like you would, I'm sure, like you're seeing with your daughter. The one thing I would really, I really saw was motivation. Mm. People, you know, always said, get him in something that he enjoys get him to, you know, find what, find out what motivates him. And the one thing we always said is we can't find anything. There was, there was never any motivation. And like I said earlier, I'm, I was that kid that loved to push boundaries. My mom will tell you that I always push the boundaries, (laughs) but I, I would also learn from those things. And, you know, I could still be redirected and, you know, motivated. Hey, why don't you, you know, go do this. And, I always playing sports. I always wanted to be better, but I do, I never saw any of that with my kids. They never wanted, they didn't care if they got better. It was just, I, they just wanted to be, mm-hmm. I guess, you yeah. know, they, they never wanted to be redirected. They never wanted to get better. They never wanted to try harder. And that was, that was one of the big things for me that I really noticed a lot. Yeah. And that must've been hard for you as a dad. I mean, you mentioned earlier that you go in expecting to be playing sports and doing all these great things with your kids. Yeah, it was really hard. Um, it, it was hard in that you just don't understand because, you know, everybody has some sort of logic in them and it's, I need you to sweep the kitchen. And as soon as you finish sweeping the kitchen, we are going to go do whatever you want to do. Do you want to go play a game? Do you want to go play catch out front? You want to go play basketball? Do you want to go play video games? And it would take an hour just to sweep the kitchen. And, but you know, it just didn't make sense. And then by then it was bedtime. And, you know, you as the parent, you feel bad because you're like, I'm trying to spend time with my child and, you know, what, why did, why did it take so long to get 
you know, a simple chore done, we could have been done in two minutes and gone out and played for an hour. And just the things that a normal kid would want to do, just, it just doesn't happen. And it's just, that was the, I think that was the weirdest part for me was just there. It was like, there was no motivation at all, or the motivation was to be defiant. Mm -hmm. Do you think you, you know, did you and your wife have opportunities to talk about what was happening, you know, when she would bring these issues up, did you have real time to talk about them or try and problem solve them? Do you feel you were a united front or if not, did that hurt you? Did you know that Rad Talk with Tracy is not just a podcast? We offer one-of-a-kind support services for parents, including supportive coaching, support groups, and retreats. Rad Talk with Tracy is an online and in-person support community for parents raising children with reactive attachment disorder, or RAD. You're not crazy, and you're not alone. Rad Talk with Tracy is a place where you'll feel understood, connected, and receive the right support. If you're looking for your people, your community, and a place where you can feel at home and start feeling better, visit radtalkwithtracy.com. Check out our services and sign up for the one that's right for you. We definitely talked about the issues and talked about what was going on. Uh, Because she saw it a lot more than I did, I think we had different ideas on how it should be taken care of. But at the same time, we often came to the point where we didn't know what to do. Mm. Because you read all the books, you, you know, you listen to experts and you try to do what they want you to do. And then you don't get the same outcome as they, you know, as they get. And so you we wanted to help them we just didn't know how Mm -hmm. I mean you just don't feel equipped so even though we would talk about it it was so hard to come to a conclusion and try to do you know the same things yeah um but usually my wife and I we would we would discuss and come to a let's try this right and I was all well why is this not working and we couldn't figure out why it wasn't working. Yeah. Yeah. And coming home from work, it sounds like you would just jump right in to try and make like life easier, you know, get everybody's homework done and in bed and baths and all of that stuff. Did you find that you had much time together? Did you ever find respite? No, we never <laughs> found respite. <laughs> I have sat in entirely way too many meetings asking Mm. for respite, asking for help. And everybody's saying, you guys really need to get respite. Okay. Where do I find that? Oh, we have no idea. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, that was, that was always frustrating (laughs) to say the least. Um, But yeah, that's pretty much what it was. Um, I would come home and you know, I would jump right in and try to help because, you know, I see my wife, she, she had worked so incredibly hard for the week that I was gone. She deserved a break. I mean, she needed that, you know, that help just because it takes so much more effort. 
How long did you have your kiddos before you, it, before that violent event with your wife and your son happened? Five years, five years. So yeah, yeah, you're plugging along for five years, not really knowing what's going on and not sure who to believe that takes a toll until some big event happens. And it's really obvious, right? Yeah. And it's really obvious when the big event happens, but you look back and you say, how did I miss all this? And, you know, without having biological kids of our own, it's, it was really hard to know what was normal and what was not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I remember Crystal Lynn saying that, and I can relate to that too, because your first kids have reactive attachment disorder and that's your first parenting experience. And that's it. You know, something, I don't know about you, but I felt like I knew something was wrong, but then there were these moments where it seemed typical and then it wasn't typical and you have no other frame of reference. And so you just start thinking we've, you just look for answers and solutions and things that work and then you're not finding them. (laughs) Yeah. It's hard. It's no, you're not finding them. And then you would, you would have friends and other things that would give you parenting advice and other stuff. You're like, we tried that, but well, you must not have done it right. Or you get, get all that stuff. It's looking back, it's just like, man, you had no idea what we went through. Right. Right. We definitely got shamed quite a bit. You got shamed quite a bit. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What was the hardest or what is the hardest part about being a dad? raising kids with reactive attachment disorder, a rad dad. Yeah. The hardest part looking back was knowing that I didn't support my wife, not necessarily believing everything that she told me. Um, it's, it brings, you know, I, I feel awful about it to be honest, because you look back and you're just like, how did I not believe her why did I think that she was just overworked and and you know looking back it's just like man I I I missed it I just missed it why do you this is a loaded question and you may not have the answer but and I don't mean to put this all on you the one dad we've got on the podcast today but why do you think that that happened what what held you back from no judgment just curiosity what do you think held you back because you're not alone in that. This is very common. And so, you know, I wonder what it is that holds you back from trusting that person or believing. I don't know. Um, I would, I I think just not seeing it. Mm. I had, you know, as my wife was a stay at home mom, so I'm the one supporting the family. So I, you know, I have my own needs that I need to think about, about supporting my family financially, making sure that everybody is, you know, has what they need. I I had to make sure my wife had all the tools and families fed and clothed and housed. And so I'm dealing with that on top of being gone Mm. and it being gone really, uh, I think is is one of the biggest things for us was just she's in it every single day where I'm off on the road, sleeping in a hotel room. So it's out of sight, out of mind a little bit. So I I think that's what a lot of it was for us 
And when you don't know, I think you do chalk it up. You just think, oh, this person is busy, exhausted. There's a lot going on and you try and come home and make up for that. And yeah. yeah. And I, I spoke to, uh, I think it was Nancy Thomas who was telling me that with one family and he, they weren't even away and didn't, you know, the husband had a really difficult time seeing these behaviors because they weren't happening around him. And they eventually had to hide him in the closet and pretend that he went to work, but he hid in the closet so that he could actually see what the mom experienced and how the child changed. And so, you know, that just speaks to what you're, what you're saying is that it's really, you, you might not know because it's really hard to see if you don't see it, it's really hard to believe. And we chalk it up, find other reasons to make it make sense. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things we did was we put cameras up in our house. Mm. We have cameras everywhere yeah. um, to the point that even with the kids out of the house, we still have them up just because we're used to them and it actually makes it easier to help look after all of our kids. <laughs> but my wife would, some part of what helped me was she would send me a text and say, hey, look at this camera at this time. Let me know what you think. Mm. And so I was able to see some of it while I was on the road or um, even sometimes when I was home, when the kids would be in, in, in a different room, you know, oh, Interesting. okay, I see that now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, when did you decide to get cameras? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> probably about a year before um, Scott had his big meltdowns. Gotcha. Yeah. I don't even remember who recommended it. Somebody said something and, you know, we were able to find pretty cheap cameras on Amazon and uh, just be able to put those up. Yeah. To make sure everybody's safe, especially with, you know, dangerous behaviors. Yeah. And so that was helpful for you. Seeing it somehow was helpful. It was helpful to see it. Um, It was also helpful to when the kids would be picking on each other, it was helpful because you could just look at the camera and say, all right, guys, we're going to look at the camera and see who's telling the truth. Right. And then usually, usually it was Scott would just get upset and kind of run off. And it's mm-hmm. like, I don't even have to look at the camera because I know exactly what happened now. And so I found that helpful because you were able to um, kind of not just, you didn't have to call out the child and his behavior, you just showed it to him. Right. There's no avoiding that because yeah, we deal with a lot of lying and manipulation and yeah. the truth and is never out there. <laughs> so. Yeah. Usually it works. Yeah. Um, I do remember one time Scott was supposed to be sweeping in the kitchen and he did something. I, I think he went and snuck a snack or something. I can't remember what. Mm-hmm because he hadn't eaten dinner or whatever. And we, I remember we showed him the camera and him doing this. And his response was, that's not me. That's not me. And it's Scott, we can see your face. It's so obviously you, there's nobody else in the rooms. There's a He was just adamant that he, it wasn't him. Yeah. And I, that I think that was one of the situations that kind of opened my eyes a little bit because it was 
what do you mean that's not you? It's so obviously you. How can you continue to lie about this? Mm -hmm. Are you delusional? What's going on here? And it was kind of, you know, then you, it, that definitely helped open my eyes to say the level of lying is so incredibly high and man, he is, I mean, if I didn't have the video, he's so convincing that it's just like, wow, it's, Mm -hmm. it's crazy at how, how good these kids are at lying. It's just And even when you would come home before you saw all of this, did you feel like, what did your relationship feel like before it got to this point? You know, you knew things were still kind of off and your wife was telling you about certain behaviors, but you weren't seeing them. Uh, What did it feel like in that moment before the real big stuff hit for you as a dad, as a parent, your relationship with Scott and your kids? Well, it just felt frustrating because you knew something wasn't right. You knew that you you knew there wasn't the attachment there and you could kind of feel things slowly unraveling Mm. and you're slowly reaching your breaking point, but you're not there. It, it, It was just, it just, you just knew something wasn't right, but you had, you couldn't pinpoint it. You couldn't say exactly what it was. Right. And you just felt, I just really felt lost. Yeah. Yeah. And when you say you couldn't feel attachment, what, what would that have looked like for you or what wasn't happening that you knew this? I don't feel there's attachment here. A lot of it, when my two-year-old daughter and my four-year-old son, when I come home, they run up to me, they give me big hugs. You know, they would say, you know, daddy, I miss you. And, and it's, you just feel, you know, you just feel that in your, in your heart. And it just, it's great. And you walk in and your son sitting at the table, doesn't look up, doesn't say hi, doesn't say, I mean, nothing. Mm. And it's just, Hey, hi, Scott. And just, Hey, and just, there's not, I mean, you can just feel mm-hmm. there there's no give and take. It's just, there's no reciprocity there. You're not getting anything back. Right. So you did have little moments, a little bit that like what you were saying, you knew something was up, but it was just little, not little things like that, but not the big things that your wife experienced right away. Well, yeah, that's just how you knew there wasn't the attachment there. And I mean, you, you chalked a lot of it up to, well, these kids are adopted or you know they had a lot of trauma right it'll come in time yeah yeah at some point you kind of expect to move past that where it's been five years and you would think your child would trust you at all you realize slowly realizing that they don't trust you to do anything Mm -hmm. they don't trust you at all yeah even with all that time and effort yeah what is life like today? Your two boys are at the boys Academy in Montana. You've got your other two children who were adopted and your biological. So your three children at home with you, you and your wife are trying to work through things. What is life like today? I know we talked to touched a little bit on it. 
life's still hectic. Life's still yeah. crazy. I, yeah. I still travel for work. Mm-hmm. Um, my four-year-old son has, he does have mental uh, disabilities. Um, so he's a whole other case study. <laughs> um, my eight-year-old daughter, she was actually the first one we adopted. She was um, our second foster child ever. And so we're really trying to work with her um, because she kind of got left out during a lot of this. Um, Scott really, he would, he would uh, focus on my wife, but he also focused a lot on my daughter. Mm. And so she took a brunt, a lot of abuse from him. So trying to repair that um, has been a big focus for my wife and I. And, you know, she has her tendencies as well that, you know, trying to work through, but who can blame her? Um, And then we have our two-year-old biological daughter and watching her grow up is just like, wait a minute, this is how everything is supposed to be. Mm. Wow. We did not see experience that. Yeah. Yeah. It's so having her is a totally different experience which has been really fun and really cool. Yeah. Yeah. And helpful. I think too, when you can see what is typical and, and, you know, reflect on what you went through or what you can do from here, expect from here on. Absolutely. And it's, things are definitely different because yeah, you're still tired because you're a parent, but you're getting love in return from your kids and, you know, you're getting those hugs you're getting, and it, it makes it feel worth it. Yeah. Yeah. And we forget that attachment is a two-way street. It's both ways. Right. And so if somebody we're all human and no matter what age you are, and if you're not getting love and affection and you're giving your all and doing everything you can to help somebody But if you're not getting it, it's really hard for the other person being the parent to form attachment. Uh, It's not just one way. We often don't have that same sense of attachment either because it's not there. Yeah. And as a, you know, as a parent, a lot of times you feel like, well, it's my job to pull, pull this child out of, you know, their depression, their hole, whatever they're in, they're rad. And it's not, that's not your job. It, I mean, it's, it is a two-way street. Mm -hmm. You have to, yeah, you got to give the child the avenues. You got to give them the help they need, but ultimately they have to make the decision. They have to be the ones to, to do it. Yeah. And that's a really good point. And I always say that too, is, uh, we're not solely, we do have that image and it's unrealistic as a parent that we're solely responsible for everything, uh, regarding our children. And, you know, it does take a village. And in the case of any child with special needs, it's impossible to do it alone. You know, I think even with typical kid, it's impossible to do it alone. Uh, we need friends, family, but with special needs, you need a whole lot more. It's yeah, it's impossible. Yeah. And that's where some of that guilt and shame comes from too, is feeling like I'm, I'm supposed to do this. Why isn't this working? We talked about things that if you were looking back, you wish you would have trusted a little bit more 
or trusted your wife or believed what she was saying and, and gone with that. Do you have any advice for dads experiencing this or any, you know, words of wisdom or? I mean, just the obvious, you have to trust your wife. You have to be more willing to, to really listen and not marginalize, not try to think it away. Mm just listen to your wife and see what she's really saying and take it for take it at face value yeah try not to think well it's because of this or because of this really listen to what she's saying and then go and look for it Mm. because yeah, you're not going to see me. You might not see it full blown, but you'll see little hints of it here and there. And, and, and yeah, just really believe what she is saying at face value because they are the ones that are, that are taking the brunt of it. They are the ones that uh, it is focused on one parent usually and just give them the benefit of the doubt. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like you said, take it at face value. Don't question it. Just, okay, this is the reality. Now, what do we do? Go look for it. Yeah. Yeah. And the more you look for it, the more you're going to find it. Mm -hmm. And the more you, you know, if you just look for it, you're going to see it. And the more you see it, the more you're going to see it more and more and more. And it's going to bring you to that realization. She's not lying to you. She has no reason to lie to you. How would that have helped you? Do you think you would have gotten help sooner or your relationship would have been a little better? I mean, I think our relationship would have been better. Um, We were always trying to find help, but we always found, you know, we always ended up at dead ends. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, That's really common and too bad. Yeah, it, it really is. Especially when you're dealing with the state and that realization that there is not a whole lot of help out there. Man, that that was tough because you kind of expect to have some sort of support and, you know, when you actually need it and then you look and you find that it's not even remotely there, it's just good luck. You're on your own. Just It's tough. It's tough. And that's something you noticed too, not just your wife, but you were aware of that, that when you were reaching out, it just wasn't there. Yeah. And, And you guys had to, didn't you have to make the decision to finally not pick up Scott from a hospital visit and report yourselves just to, for your safety? Yes. Um, we had three incident. We had the one incident with my wife and then we had two other incidences within a, uh, it was all within a, a month. Wow. Um, so we had three total incidents and after the third one, uh, actually, after the second one, we were advised not to pick him up. Um, I'm the one that said they got talked into bringing him home. That was mm. that was all me. Um, I got guilted into it, and that was a huge mistake. It took less than a week. I think it was three days before we had our third incident, and we the police came the third time. And, um, at that point we had a lot of help in terms of advice, a letter that we could give straight to the police 
So instead of it being the police at our house for two, three hours, they were there for less than 10 minutes. Wow. Yeah. Uh, but through all that, we found out there's no place to send these kids. And so um, they go to the emergency room and they pretty much just sit there and they love it. Yeah. That was an eye opener. Was that? Was it? Love it? Yeah. But um, I, what was your question? Oh, no, I <laughs> I on a tangent. oh no, no, it's good. Um, I don't even know what my question was to be honest. I think just, well, and you were talking about getting guilted into, was that that parent kind of like, Oh, you know, this poor kid, I want to bring him back home. What, when you say you were guilted into bringing him home that one time before you realize, Ooh, okay. So the second time when we got guilted into bringing Scott home, it was, we got a lot of threats from the state caseworker. We were going to go to jail. We were going to be prosecuted. Um, Our other children would be taken away from us. I mean, you name it, we, we were threatened with it. And when you're in the middle of crisis, you don't have the ability to sit down and go, are they telling the truth or not? Right. And we found out later that they weren't even remotely telling us the truth. Wow. Uh, the state cannot take your kids. The state doesn't even really charge you with anything. And they, they can. And we found out it was just a minor misdemeanor where they were telling us it was a felony and we're going to jail. Mm. They can't they weren't they can't send you to jail for this. Once we actually talked to somebody that knew what was going on, they said the worst thing that was going to happen was you would go to court, you would tell the judge your story, and the judge was going to say, well, obviously, if your kid's attacking you, they cannot be in the house. Mm-hmm. You didn't do anything wrong. Right. And so it was an eye opener later on when it was just like, not only is the state not able to help you, they are actively trying to make it worse. Yeah. Yeah. And so that was, that was just beyond frustrating. Well, and frightening when your whole life is threatened like that. And, oh, absolutely. Uh, and you know, I, I think another thing people don't realize is that we as parents end up in our own survival mode and we're traumatized and we have to make these decisions in a split moment, you know? Mm-hmm split second and you don't have time to think and it's time to go home and today's the day and there's no time to reach out to resources if they're even there. Right. Yeah. And, um, Absolutely. yeah, yeah. And so the, the third time going back, I think I remember what your old question was about was having to leave Scott at the hospital and mm. refusing to pick up. And I was on many phone calls about that. Um, with the state, with the hospital, um, all kinds of stuff. And the one time we were on with the hospital, the hospital actually was very aggressive against the state. Oh, wow. Saying, this kid, they, the nurses said, this kid obviously cannot come home. What are you going to do about it? And the state said, we disagree with you. Um, we're going to do nothing. And so knowing that the state wouldn't even listen to doctors mm-hmm. was, it was just, it was eye opening. Yeah. Um, 
but yeah, we ended up through the whole process, we ended up sitting down in a big meeting with 20 some professionals going through every single option and up for therapy for help. And we came up with nothing. Wow. I think they came up with one program that the state didn't even offer. Mm. And so it there was really nothing there. And I remember towards the end of the meeting, specifically asking the whole entire group saying, you have heard everything we have tried. What is left for us to try? Mm-hmm. And it was just crickets. There's just nothing. And realizing we did everything we could and there's nothing wow. it was just, that was really eye opening and it brought a lot of anger and frustration, but at the same time, knowing that you tried everything really made a big difference. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I bet yeah. because then, you know, you've done everything you could do. Yeah. And, but it's tough because mm-hmm. leaving your kid at the hospital, no, I mean, they were in, he was in a normal emergency room. There wasn't any beds at the children's emergency room. They refused to take him. It, it's tough to leave him there because you care about the kid. You love your kid. Absolutely. And you know, you're wanting to do the best thing you can for them. And Mm -hmm. you know, leaving them in the hospital is not the best thing for them, but it's the only option. And you realize that is your only option to protect your family because you do care about your wife. You do care about your other kids. And Mm -hmm. at some point you have to step up and protect the rest of your family. You do. And you have to make very hard decisions that most people don't have to make. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, it's so hard. And, you know, I think it varies state to state. I've talked with people who have been arrested. And I think that's the thing is it's just, you know, there are no clear answers. And if these larger uh, facilities have difficulty coming up with that, and that's who we reach out to for support, that just speaks to how big this issue is. Yeah. And like you said, each state is definitely different. So, I mean, if you're getting to that point, look it up before you're in crisis. Um, Because knowing beforehand and understanding the rules beforehand really made a big difference. Yeah. Having somebody that can advocate for you, give you advice, who's not in trauma, really, that was unbelievably helpful because I know without that, I probably, we would have probably been scared into bringing him home. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You do need that outside guidance that like you say, isn't in trauma. What helped you, or are you doing anything today to continue helping you manage this? What do you do for support now? Uh, We've done a couple different things. First, my, my parents live in town and after everything happened with Scott, they started seeing the same behaviors in Caleb um, so they started to understand more of what we went through. Oh, wow. And so it allowed them to help advocate for us. And, uh, we, and when we made a hard decision, having them, having their support definitely helped because a lot of times you don't have support from anybody. Right. Nobody understands. 
Right. Um, so that was, so that's been a little helpful. Um, one of the biggest things we did was we did a weekend uh, therapy session um, for parents that have rad kids. That really helped. I know that personally helped me a lot because when, when your child does leave, it really is like the death of a child. Mm-hmm. And so being able to grieve that process really helped because you had, you had those expectations, you had those hopes and dreams and mm-hmm. they're gone. They're gone. Yeah. Yeah. And so what is your hope for you and your relationship and your family from this point? And what advice would you give to anybody out there? You've given a lot of good advice, actually. So what does it look like for you guys from here? Or do you even know? <laughs> um, I don't know. Yeah. Um, you know, we're still, you know, we're still dealing with our boys and, and still dealing with some of their behaviors, even though they're not in the house and Mm -hmm. they're, um, they're still part of your family and you're still parents. Yeah. Our hope is that, you know, they, they are able to want to, um, heal. Um, we, we pray a lot. Um, we've kind of maybe come to the understanding of w- what our role as parents for these boys is. Because um, you can parent from from a distance. Mm-hmm. You can you can help these kids from a distance. Yeah. And we've we've realized that we can be their parents, but maybe it was not God's plan to have them in our home. Mm-hmm. So we understand that where they are now is definitely the safest place for them. Yeah. And that's probably going to be the best thing for it. And it takes a while to come to that realization, but you're saying something important that I always say as well is one of the biggest things, or I think the best places you can get to, but it is filled with grief and loss is recognizing or letting go of those expectations you had for yourself as a parent and the family you thought you were going to have, and then recreating what that role is. And it doesn't look like everybody else, but for you, you know, you're parenting two children that are at a distance or, you know, sometimes we are not going to be that loving attached father, daughter, father, son, but we can still be that support person and function maybe more like uh, a foster parent or just somebody that's there and solid in their life that they can come back to. But uh, you know, once you get there, I find that it's very freeing, but boy, is it ever a process to get there? <laughs> it's definitely a process and it's hard. It is hard. And it's hard. Yeah. Yeah. And it's different for everybody else, but that's helped you. And do you feel that you and Crystalline being more on the same page and more aware has helped you from this point forward now with Caleb and the rest of your kids? Yeah, it, yeah. it definitely has helped. Definitely listen better, trust earlier, um, yeah, and really see where she's at. Yeah, and more of a team, right? Be that united front. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Uh, but a lot of that's also we're out of the main trauma and Mm -hmm. 
you can't you can't make very good rational decisions being <laughs> in that trauma. No, you can't. <laughs> and so sitting down and being able to being out of it definitely helps because mm. you can sit back and you can see yeah. what you did wrong, what you did right. And you know, yeah, you can apologize for what you did wrong. And mm-hmm. you know, it it definitely helps. Yeah. Well, and you're not alone. And I think what you've shared about as soon as possible or as best as you possibly can really trust your partner. That's experiencing the brunt of it when they're telling you stuff is going on, take it at face value. And I think that as a starting point just sets you on a better course. Not that it's not going to still be rocky and rough. I mean, there's nothing easy about reactive attachment disorder, but that piece is very key. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, you're definitely going to make mistakes. We all do. That's, that's human nature. That's normal. But once you recognize it, it makes it easier. Yeah. Yeah. Trust and then look for it. Look for what they're saying and you'll see it. Yep. Yeah. Well, Brady, thanks so much for taking the time to share, you know, your perspective as a dad. We don't often hear that uh, as much as we do from the people really in the trenches who are often the moms or the primary caregiver. So, uh, I know you're busy and you're on the road a lot, but thank you so much for speaking out. I think it's going to really help a lot of other dads out there. Absolutely. Thanks for listening, everyone. And I hope you'll be back to listen to future episodes. If you like the show, please subscribe and help me spread the word by clicking share and like, if you're a parent who needs more support, whether it's for you or your family, please check out my website at radtalkwithtracy.com and visit radadvocates.org.